0: Here. I'll ask you to turn with me this evening to Acts and chapter three. Acts chapter three. First 10 verses. We've had in Acts chapter one, uh, that recommissioning. Then, as we came into chapter 2, the Holy Spirit has been poured out in accordance with the commission that Christ gave recorded at the end of Luke's Gospel and at the beginning of this second part of his history. There's been a, a demonstration of divine power, then an explanation, an application of God's work in a sermon. And in the end of chapter 2, you saw this uh, infant church Uh, growing very rapidly in God's kindness. Now in Acts 3 from verse 1, Now Peter and John went up together to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And a certain man, lame from his mother's womb, was carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful, to ask alms from those who entered the temple. Who, seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, asked for alms? And fixing his eyes on him with John, Peter said, look at us. So he gave them his attention, expecting to receive something from them. Then Peter said, silver and gold I do not have, but what I do have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and lifted him up, and immediately his feet and ankle bones received strength. So he, leaping up, stood and walked and entered the temple with them, walking, leaping, and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God. Then they knew that it was he who sat begging alms at the beautiful gate of the temple. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. Let's pray. Lord God, fill us with holy wonder, holy awe at what takes place when you show your power and mercy in delivering a soul from sin and death. Grant, O God, that these marvellous works by your spirit would encourage and stir our souls still as we think about what it means for your kingdom to come on earth. Lord, instruct us illuminate us for jesus sake we pray amen imagine that every time you come to church you have to step over somebody who's lying in the porch every week he's there asking you for something a little bit of money a little bit of food something anything He calls out to you when he sees you coming. He gets louder the closer you get. He doesn't stop when you go past him. You can hear him all the time through the church service. You end up closing the windows perhaps because it's all becoming a little bit too much. Do you give him something the first week? Do you give him something the second week? you start asking why the deacons aren't doing something about this to, to either give him what he needs or, or maybe gently, lovingly, Christianly to get rid of him and take him out of the equation? Can you imagine coming every single week and every time you come to church, that man is there and he's saying, can you help me? Can you help me again? That's what it was like to be a temple worshipper In Jerusalem at this time. You do wonder how much compassion might give way to frustration. How would you respond? How would you respond if you had money in your pocket, if you had food in your larder? How would you respond if you didn't? Well, Peter and John, they were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. This is the hour of the evening sacrifice, as it was called. It's about three o'clock in the afternoon. Why are they going to the temple? Well, it may be a matter of liberty. It's a convenient place for them to gather to worship God. The Lord has uh, taken away the need for a physical place on earth in which to meet with God, but they are free as Jews to go to that place, although I would have suggested that they would be, I hope, very careful about the fact to, to emphasize that they didn't need the sacrifices. And in that sense, it may have been less liberty and more opportunity. What better place to go and to preach The sacrifice of Christ that finishes all other sacrifices, but the temple where those now obsolete sacrifices are being offered by priests that you do not need anymore because the Lamb of God and the great high priest has worked to take away the sin of the world. And it's a busy time, this hour of prayer. It's one of those seasons. It's, it's like you and me saying, well, we'll go to morning worship and we'll go to evening worship. When is the beggar going to come and sit outside? When all the people are gathering. And he is at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful. Now I could take up the entire rest of the time normally allotted for a sermon, giving you an in-depth study of how many gates there were in the temple and which of them might have been called the beautiful gate outside which this crippled man was lying. Uh, There are pages and pages of material in the commentators about the precise nature of the beautiful gate. All you need to know is there's a gate in the temple that was called Beautiful by the people at that time, and that's where this beggar was, and it may well be the big one where most people would have gone because it was on the right side of the city. It's the best place for a beggar to be carried. And there he is at this busy hour of prayer at the beautiful gate, and he interacts with these two apostles, Peter and John. Now, that interaction shows us a representative act of the apostles. We're told that many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. Here's one of them. It's also significant because of how it builds Luke's historical narrative. Not only is it a demonstration of gospel power, but it's significant in the ongoing history of the church because it shows us one of the ways in which the persecution of this infant church began rapidly to develop. So it's representative on one level, but it's also significant in terms of moving forward the narrative of the church's experience. It begins with a desperate man. A certain man, lame from his mother's womb carried in, whom was laid daily at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful, to ask alms from those who entered the temple. He's begging. He wants a daily coin so that he can eat and drink. He saw Peter and John about to go into the temple, and he asked them for alms. Now, for the Jewish people, still at this time, the temple would have been the pinnacle of divine worship the vast majority of the Jews would have thought of this as the place where they could go to meet with God. And it is at least possible that the reason why this man is laid outside is because he can't go in. If you go back to Leviticus chapter 21, probable that that has more to do with the priests than with the general uh, run of the people. Nevertheless, there is this sense, there there is a bar on those who are Deformed. Those who are in some way stricken. In 2 Samuel and chapter 5, there's another uh, insight, a little suggestion perhaps that this man is outside because he can't go inside. David said when he took the stronghold of Zion, whoever climbs up by the way of the water shaft and defeats the Jebusites, the lame and the blind, hated by David's soul, he shall be called chief and captain, and therefore, they say, the blind and the lame shall not come into the house. So it's possible that because of this man's inability, which you remember, this, such disabilities as this man had are typically considered uh, to be uh, outward representations of uh, the, the, the holiness of God and what it means then for somebody who's broken and damaged not to be able to come into his presence. This man is outside quite possibly because he's not allowed inside. He's cut off from god he's what we would call perhaps today a little harshly maybe a charity case we're told later on in chapter four that he is over 40 years old that puts him squarely in the bracket for quite a few of us doesn't it and since birth he has never been able to walk there's a problem with his feet and with his ankles And with his inability to support himself physically you can imagine the way that any muscles on his legs would have atrophied so those of you who are in your 40s you've never been able to walk there are no properly measured crutches for you there are no wheelchairs you cannot walk so you cannot work the only way you can survive is if somebody else carries you to where there are enough people to give you enough coins that you can get enough to eat today in anticipation of another day's begging tomorrow. Luke's medical touch may be in evidence here you get some of those details lame from his mother's womb talks about his feet and his ankle bones in verse 7 he knows from verse 22 of chapter 4 how long this man has been unwell you're getting some of the detail that someone like luke might have given and the man then is begging for alms. this is the best place for him Maybe he's relying on pity, maybe even on piety. After all, these are good religious Jews. Uh, There's a a possibility that uh, this is the best way that he can uh, play upon their consciences because uh, at least some of these Jews would have thought that they were doing a good deed for God by giving this man something on the way into the temple. Now, if you're like the Pharisee of whom we read this morning, what better way than to come into the presence of God than by having given this poor wretch some money on the way in? I thank you, Lord, that I'm not like other men. Now, I saw people who didn't give that guy money. I I dropped a mite into his begging bowl. Remember what we heard last Sunday evening. There were Jews who would have looked upon this man and they would have done something like Job's friends had done to Job. What sin did he commit that he was born like this? Or maybe it was his parents. God's punishing him some way. Disdain? Pity? Paying God off? That's what this man expects day by day as he's carried to the temple at the time of the afternoon sacrifice. Now, according to Deuteronomy chapter 15, the poor of the land should have been cared for. The tragedy doesn't just lie in the fact that this man is outside and he can't go in. Israel should have been caring for such people. The temple outside of which he lies ought to have been the centre of a programme of care designed to look after the neediest in the land. In some senses, this man is a testimony to the failure of Israel. To act in accordance with the compassion and mercy of its God. So, everything in the picture is wrong. There's something off in everything. You've got this man, and he's been lame from birth for 40 plus years, carried to the temple. People step over him and around him. Some of those who were giving money to him, perhaps the best will in the world. They, they think this is some kind of religious uh, payoff that they're giving. The fact that he's there shows that something isn't right in the state of Israel. He is a desperate man indeed. And then comes an unexpected blessing. He sees Peter and John about to go into the temple. And as with everybody who goes past, he says, Have you got anything for me? Now, fixing his eyes on him with John, Peter said, Look at us. So he gave them his attention, expecting to receive something from them. Now, if you're walking through town and you see one of those people with the collecting jars rattling, or with the, the board that's in front of them, or perhaps there's a there's a homeless person. What's the last thing that a lot of people want to do? What do you not do if you want to not be bothered? You do not make eye contact. That's the first danger, isn't it? When someone thinks, oh, there's someone strange coming towards me. make, Oh, no, they saw me and I saw them. Not just eye contact here, friends, but voice contact. It's not just that Peter accidentally locks eyes with this guy and then tries to look away. Peter looks at him and Peter says, You look at me. Everything in what Peter and John are doing is designed to fix this man's attention upon them. They're sending all the right signals. This man thinks he's got his payday coming, doesn't he? Now someone's going to give me something. Now someone's going to pay attention to me. Everything looks positive. John and Peter fix their eyes on him and they tell him, look at us. He gave them his attention, expecting to receive something from them. And Peter said, I haven't got any money. You imagine them, oh, really? I mean, everything seemed to... You looked at me, you told me to look at you. And now you're telling me you've got no silver or gold? This is going to crush the man. You can, you can think... Now, we're not saying that Peter doesn't have silver and gold in the sense that he never has it and he certainly wouldn't give it to this beggar even if he did. We're not saying that Peter's lacking in compassion. Peter doesn't have, it seems, any money with him. But he's not there to tantalise it. Peter's got something far better than silver and gold to offer this man. Silver and gold I do not have, but what I have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand, lifted up, and immediately his feet and ankle bones received strength. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Now you notice the title that Peter uses when he speaks to this man. It is in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth... By the power and by the authority of that man. It is not me, says Peter, who is the source of your goodness. It is not me who is the the, the one from whom these blessings come. I am speaking to you as the representative of someone else. I am an ambassador and I call you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Now that's full on identification. It's not incantation. It's not some magic spell. It's not some form of words that guarantees a good outcome. Peter is saying, I want to direct your attention to someone other than me. And it is Jesus the saviour the christ of god it's the man from nazareth it's the despised nazarene who died on the cross in jerusalem i'm speaking to you in his name and i want you to put your trust in his name peter is representing not an idea but a real and living man, the Saviour who came from Nazareth and died in Jerusalem. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. It's a command to receive a gift. Isn't that divine? I have something good for you. Now, take it. Isn't it curious? You would have thought that the Lord need only offer it. But in his mercy, he commands us, take it. You're listening to the command of God when he says to you, I have a good thing for you. When Christ says, I have life for you. Now take it. Take what I offer. Receive my mercy. And this throws shade on any possibility of silver and gold, even in abundance. You see the man's face and shoulders droop. I haven't got any silver and gold But I can tell you in the name of Jesus of Nazareth that you may rise up now and walk. Now, what's he calling upon him to do? To trust this Jesus, to make him well. In the name of Jesus of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And you notice what he does. He takes him by the right hand and lifts him. He expects this man to act in accordance with the command to receive a gift. See that beautiful blend of gracious sovereignty and human responsibility? God says, I have a gift. Now you receive it. And Peter, as the agent of that gift, as the, the one who speaks in the name of Jesus, he says, I want you to act immediately in the light of God's command to receive his mercies. It's very like gospel preaching, isn't it? Believe and live. But I can't. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, I tell you, believe and live. And it leads to a marvellous change. There's something beautifully Christ-like in what happens in verses 7 and 8. He took him by the right hand and lifted him up, and immediately his feet and ankle bones received strength. So he, leaping up, stood and walked and entered the temple with them, walking, leaping, and praising God. I don't think there's a much more Christ-like gesture in all the New Testament histories than that of stooping down, reaching out a hand and lifting up. It's beautifully Christ-like. Peter's seen our Lord do this again and again and again to the most needy. He's seen him do it physically. He's seen him do it spiritually. The very... incarnation of Jesus Christ is a stooping down in order to bless it's this most Christ-like gesture I have a good thing for you now come and receive it and he's calling for faith and you will notice that this man took Peter's right hand and as he was lifted up immediately his feet and ankle bones received strength. It's in the very response to Peter's command in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth that this man is made well. And Luke tells us with that very specific medical emphasis, his feet and his ankle bones received strength. And the record emphasises the nature of this cure. This is not partial, and this is in no way limited. Perhaps the bones are in some way damaged or the joints are in some way non-functional but it means that his whole body is perhaps wasted from the, the hips or the knees down. You would have thought if this had been some kind of merely medical intervention, if there'd been some surgery, how many weeks or months of physiotherapy would there have been needing before this man could even begin to walk on his own two legs? But this is not a medical intervention, this is the power of God from heaven. And Peter says, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk, and he reaches down. And the man does what he's commanded. In the name of Jesus of Nazareth, he reaches up and he puts his weight upon his feet. And as he does so, his ankle bones and his feet are made strong. And what is the extent of this mercy? Leaping up, he stood and walked and entered with them, walking, leaping and praising God. Uh, Luke now layers on the verbs of action in order to emphasise seven in total. He leaps, he stands, he walks, he enters, he walks, he leaps, he praises. Do you get the picture? This man is well. This man is able now to engage. The lame is leaping. And if you have any sense, if you're an Israelite, of what it means for the lame to leap... Then you begin to understand that what you have here is a demonstration of messianic power and the coming of the kingdom of God. Isaiah 35. The wilderness and the wasteland shall be glad for them, and the desert shall rejoice and blossom as the rose. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice, even with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to the wilderness and the wasteland, the excellence of Carmel and Sharon. The barren places have become fruitful. Why? They shall see the glory of the Lord, the excellency of our God. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who are fearful-hearted. Be strong, do not fear. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. Then the lame shall leap like a deer, and the tongue of the dumb sing, for waters shall burst forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert." Isaiah says that when God draws near, the realities of the new creation will break forth. This is the very text that our Lord quoted in Luke chapter 7 when he was speaking of the reality of his presence and his pity joined with power to make well what was sick, to heal what was broken. This, says Jesus, is the mark that Messiah has come. And Peter is demonstrating again that Messiah is come and that he is risen from the grave and that what he did while he was walking on the earth, he is doing still by faith in his name. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. The new creation is still breaking in By Christ's power. And it's doing so in a way that is designed to send a message to everyone looking on God is here. God is at work. This is the beginning of the restoration of all things. This is the new creation breaking in to this broken and sin wrecked world. This man is a living, leaping demonstration of the truth of God's word he's a praising proof of the messianic identity of Jesus of Nazareth and he goes into the temple with them I wonder if there's a, a double message there for any of the Jews who were looking on this man who was outside can now go inside but I think there's something even better It's not the fact that he goes into the temple that's particularly significant to us. It's the fact that he goes into the temple with them. Because these men are the temple. This is the church of God. This is the temple of the living God. This is where the spirit now dwells, not in buildings made with stone. But in the very church of the risen Jesus Christ. Yes, he may be going into the edifice of the temple, but he's going into the temple spoken of truly because he's now with God's people. He shares their faith. He shares their life. He enters into their community. And there's a stunned audience. All the people saw him walking and praising God. I don't know if that's a bit of understatement. Bear in mind, he's leaping up. He's walking and leaping and praising God. This man's got legs that work for the first time in 40 plus years. You bet he's walking and leaping. Can you imagine him praising God? He's telling them, this man spoke to me in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth and I am well. And they look at him, and they knew that it was he who sat begging alms at the beautiful gate of the temple. Maybe some of them recognize him, because that's where he sits every single day at the hour of the evening sacrifice. Maybe it's because he's praising God. Look at me, I who once could not walk, now am walking. I was lying, lame and broken at the gate of the temple. Here I am, walking and leaping before the God of my salvation. They can't not know. That this is the man who was lying begging alms at the beautiful gate of the temple, and they are filled with wonder and amazement at what has happened to him. They can all see what he is now, they all know what he was before, and they are stunned. And as we shall see, amazement is not the same as faith or at what God can do in another is not the same as confidence in what God himself will do for us. There are people, perhaps in your family, they cannot deny the change that they see in you. They know that you are not what you once were. Friends who've seen the the difference in your life because you've come to Jesus Christ the cleanness where there was dirtiness, the joy where there was sorrow, the peace where there was distress. And they can't explain it. And they don't really bother trying. But it's nice for you, and it's not for me. I'm not saying that that's precisely the language that some of these Israelites were using, but in the light of what follows on, Although they're impressed, they're not necessarily persuaded. All the evidence of Christ's power lies before them. Will they make the connection? Will you? See, we can sit here this evening, can't we, and say, what is it that these people don't understand what's going on? My friends, do you understand what's going on? Are you making the connection between the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth and the coming in of the new creation? Do you understand that, as Peter will go on to make very clear, look at what he says. Verse 12, why do you marvel at this? Or Why do you look so intently at us as though by our own power or godliness we had made this man walk? They say, well, you know, that guy spoke to him, and now, so it must be that fellow. And Peter says, Why are you looking at me? Why are you pointing at me? What do you think this has to do with me? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered up and denied in the presence of Pilate when he was determined to let him go. He talks about his death, talks about his resurrection. Then, verse 16, and his name. Through faith in his name has made this man strong whom you see and know. Yes, the faith which comes through him has given him this perfect soundness in the presence of you all. Do you understand the connection between Jesus and the Christians that you see in this congregation? You've seen and heard At least eight people this year give a testimony of their faith. Some of them have been younger, some of them have been older. Some of them were baptised before, several of them have been baptised among us. And you've heard your peers, and you've heard people that perhaps at the beginning of this year, you didn't even know, come and stand here and say, I have been made whole and well. How is that? Is it because I happen to preach once or twice a blinder of a sermon? Is it because one of you is a particularly persuasive uh, witness and you you really convince somebody to come into the church because it would be a good thing for them? Or is it through this name, through faith in this name? That's how people become Christians not because someone is cleverer than them or can argue better than them or can sweep them away on a tide of rhetoric. And that's how you need to become a Christian, by faith in this name. This is what it means to become part of God's kingdom, to enter into the new creation in Christ Jesus. You've got a a stunning picture here, and that's what it's intended to communicate. Drawing on that imagery of Isaiah 35, this episode is saying to you, this is the kind of power that Jesus of Nazareth shows. This is the pity in salvation of the Christ of God. This man is utterly broken. This man is sin-wrecked. What do people want today? Social help. They want money, they want pleasure, they want security, they they want silver and gold. And when this man sat outside the beautiful gate that day, he wasn't looking any higher than they were. We're not a glorified social service, brothers and sisters. I'm not saying we lack compassion, I hope you don't. In one sense, I I wish that all God's people were considered a soft touch because of the tenderness of their hearts and the openness of their hands. We're the people who are ready to do good. But you could give all your goods to the poor and it wouldn't raise them one inch closer to heaven. You could feed a thousand hungry people over the course of the next week and they'd be hungry again the week after and no closer to the kingdom of God. My point is not that we don't show compassion and kindness on a merely human level my point is this that this congregation and others like us we have something far better to offer those who are dead and wounded and grieved on account of their sins those who are spiritually lying at the gate and hoping that somebody might do some good for them When you don't have silver and gold, you can say to somebody, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. I'm not saying that you can walk into the wards of the hospitals and heal them all, but you can go to any man, any woman, any boy, any girl, in whatever would be the spiritual equivalent of the intensive care unit on the very point of death. And you can say, there is life for you in Jesus of Nazareth. It's not physical well-being you need most. It's not social restoration. It's not financial security. It's the life of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Have you known that? Have you known his pity? Joined with power? Have you heard him speaking through his servants? In the name of this Saviour, the Christ of God, despised of men, but esteemed by all who know him, get up and live for his praise and glory. My friends, when that happens, you'll be made whole and you'll be brought in. And the issue will not be so much whether you come into this or some other particular building as it will that you've been brought into the community of those who believe. With them is the sweetness of this man's life afterwards. Do you see the fruit? Do you see the fruit in your own heart? Have you rejoiced in the fruit of others? Can you help seeing those who once were lame, leaping and walking and praising God. They were dead and now they're alive. That ought to strike us with holy awe and amazement. And it's what you and I should long for, not just in ourselves, but in others. Peter, very explicitly, Lord willing, will come on to this. Peter sees this as a present mark of the messianic reign. Christian, the life that is in you is an evidence here of the reign of the risen Jesus. And you should be walking and leaping and praising God so that everybody knows that you are not what and where you once were and if you're still lying in the dust outside, will you, even now, in all your need, take this Jesus at his word? Rejoice because of him. Live in and through him. Walk with him and with us, praising the God of our salvation. In the name of Jesus of Nazareth, even this night, you too may rise up and walk. Amen.